Well, this is uh, episode four now, uh, lesson four of a series we're doing out of First Samuel 15, the first episode of which we entitled Worship God Rejects. Worship God Rejects. And I have to tell you, I've had some moments myself as we've gone through this series together that um, have been very sobering, very, very, uh, I've had to really just kind of sit quiet before the Lord and contemplate the fact that as we connect the dots between Saul's pseudo-obedience and his alternative form of worship that he introduced, both of which God absolutely, unequivocally rejected, even rejecting Saul as king, if we can connect the dots between this lesson from 1 Samuel 15 and the pseudo-obedience an alternative worship that's going on today within contemporary Christianity, it will cause you to pause. It will cause you to sit still before the Lord. It will cause you, hopefully, to do some self-examination and ask, am I involved in that kind of pseudo-obedience? Am I involved in an alternative form of worship that God rejects? What am I doing now, that's the bad news. The good news is, is that we have discovered in our last episode that there is a cure for the incurable wound of chronic rebellion, what Jeremiah and Jeremiah 30, verse 12, refers to as the incurable wound that results of, as of chronic rebellion on the part of God's, even God's covenant people. We tracked that back in our last episode to the fall, of course, with Adam listening to the voice of his wife instead of uh, defending the voice of God and uh, seeking to um, modify the word of God to him and to make it conform and fit better with Eve's wishes and the, and the temptation and promises of the serpent, the deception of the serpent. And we saw then that it, that carried through into the wilderness generation where they tempted God and they were disobedient and they heard the voice of God, but they hardened their hearts continuously. And the faithfulness and the stubbornness of Israel throughout that wilderness generation, even to the point <clears throat> that after Joshua died and they had a period where they were under judges, that they demanded a king like all the other nations. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the people, the elders of Israel gathered and they decided they wanted a king. Samuel was distressed by this, it says in the text, but God comforted Samuel by telling him, it's not about you, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. So it had progressed. Not only had they rejected God's word to them, they were now rejecting God himself as their king and insisting that God give them a king like all the other nations. And that brings us to, of course, the study and the person of Saul. And this chapter, 1 Samuel 15 where we see that Saul assumed the prerogative <clears throat> to introduce a pseudo form of obedience, a partial obedience, which would allow 
for his own lust for honor and the greed of the people, and then sought to justify that action, that behavior, by introducing an alternative form of worship to that which God had commanded. <clears throat> the result was, of course, that, that God utterly rejected Saul. And so, we, having made that connection, we began to look in Jeremiah in the last lesson and discover that at the, in the heart of that book, chapters 30, 31, and 32, and 33, there is this great section of consolation. From uh, Jeremiah 5, 6, 7, 8, and, four, and so on, you have these de declarations of just how awful uh, and how faithless Israel had become. And let me just read and remind you of a few of those. Um, Jeremiah 5, 30. It's very important before we look at the cure. Jeremiah 5, uh, 30, it says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. See, this is the gig right here. Stick with me now, because this is going to pull together during our lesson today. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. They were practicing the very thing that Saul did, pseudo-obedience. It looked like obedience. It sounded like obedience. It was, uh, they were using terminology and even perhaps symbols that reflected obedience. But the fact was, it was their own authority. And here's the thing that strikes you in verse 31 the prophet goes on to say, and my people love it this way. Let me read that again. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. And this is the burden that you and I are experiencing today in contemporary Christianity. If you're suffering from a lack of pastoral care, if your Christian experience is unfulfilling and confusing, and your the teaching coming from your pastors and elders and the worship that you're participating in is confusing and distressing, then there's a good chance that what you're experiencing is some form of Saul-like pseudo-obedience on the part of your leaders. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Thanks be to God that the Bible doesn't pull punches. It's an appalling, horrible thing. But we're just too nice to say that. Well, we think it's about us. We think we're the problem. And sometimes our leaders even tell us, you are the problem. You're being divisive. You're being critical. But an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land, both in ancient Israel and in modern American Christianity. The prophets prophesy falsely. All you got to do is turn on Christian television. And you'll see dozens of them. And the priests and the Protestant traditionalists rule on their own authority. They've modified the word of God to fit their tradition. And my people love it this way. But what will you do when the end comes? And that's what I'm working to spare you from. I'm working to spare you from false religion. And to spare you from the judgment that is coming and is even now underway on that false Christianity. And, more importantly, 
or as importantly at least, is to help you recognize that the gospel is still true, that the gospel still addresses and heals, that the gospel not only saves us from the penalty of sin, it saves us from the pollution of sin. Listen, the gospel is more than just grace offered. It is grace applied. Let me say that again. The gospel is more than grace offered. It is grace applied. The dual curve, the double cure, as the old hymn said. Free from sin and purified. So these are the things that Jeremiah is calling out. And then Jeremiah 6.16, he says, This is what the Lord says, Stand by the ways and see, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find a resting place for your souls. Isn't that what you want today? A resting place for your soul? Isn't that why you tune in to these series like this? As you're looking for the rest in your soul? The rest that you know intuitively, instinctively, by the Spirit in you is yours. It is a spiritual birthright. But the faithlessness and the stubbornness of Israel, when God told them that, they said, but they said, we will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Then this went on and on and on and on throughout Israel's history. Jeremiah declares in, in, in 7, 1 through 11, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand at the gate at the Lord's house and proclaim this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judea, Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a person and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor follow other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. This is my message to you. So many of us have spent so much of our Christian life trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are saved, so that you may do all these abominations? Scary stuff. So in the midst of all of this faithlessness, stubbornness, what Jeremiah calls the incurable wound, where there's no, from which there is no recovery, came the promise of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31. The new covenant, which is not like the old covenant. In this covenant, he puts the law within them, writes it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
They will not teach each one again and his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. So the cure for the incurable wound of chronic rebellion, faithless and stubborn nature, the fallen nature of man is truly spiritually dead. The wound to them, their, their incurable wound of chronic rebellion cannot be cured except by a God-appointed, created cure. And we realize at the end of the last lesson that that cure is the new covenant. What is more, we discovered in Isaiah 42, 8, that that new covenant is not in the abstract. It's not written on stone. It's not written on parchment. The new covenant is Jesus himself. Isaiah 42 tells us that God said he will, speaking of his servant, turn there real quick. Isaiah 42 he says, and I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. This is a messianic prophecy. I, am, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you, you, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in the darkness from the prison. I am the Lord that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I desire new things. Before they sprout, I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. There is a cure. Thanks be to God. Jesus is the cure. So now today, in this Lesson, I want to talk with you about the even though the cure is so clear, and Jesus was that cure, He is that cure, He always will be, yesterday, today, and forever. That cure, He is the embodiment of the new covenant. He Himself, in His life, in His finished work, He Himself is our covenant, our covenant Lord, our covenant God, our covenant Savior. And so, what has happened, however, those who are devoted to pseudo-obedience and false worship have never ceased to oppose God's cure. And those who oppose God's cure have nothing to give you but their own path to destruction. No, this may sound a little heavy. <laughs> I warned you in the first episode, this is not going to be a feel-good series, but it is going to be a deliberating, it'll be a liberating series. It's going to be a series that opens your eyes, opens your ears to the truth of what's going on around us, why it's going on around us, how it's rooted in the biblical truth, and how that Jesus is the cure in as much that he uh, inaugurated and consecrated a new covenant. He himself, on the cross, in his own blood, 
So that if you are in Christ, you are under a new covenant of the Spirit, no longer under law. You're no longer in the realm of the flesh. You're under the realm of the Spirit. This may sound strange to some of your ears. It's because you've gone for so long without actually hearing the gospel. You've been hearing something, but it hasn't been the gospel. So I want to speak with you today about the lethal nature of religious addiction also known theologically as religious traditionalism. Let me say that again. I want to speak with you today about the lethal nature of religious addiction, also known theologically as religious traditionalism. So, as I say, I spoke with you about about what Jeremiah referred to as the incurable wound. That is to say, that sin of chronic rebellion that defines fallen human nature and for which there is no recovery. It places a person beyond human aid. Now this incurable wound, the result of sin, is the taproot of all human trauma. In fact, the word trauma is derived from the ancient Greek and means to wound. Isn't that interesting? The incurable wound could easily be translated the incurable trauma from the ancient Greek. So I'm not speaking about psychology here. I'm not speaking psychobabble. I'm not teaching philosophy. I'm giving you grounded in biblical truth reality about the human condition. So to be traumatized is to be wounded. To be human is to be traumatized. The incurable wound of chronic rebellion is perpetuated by human dynamics within all family systems because no family is perfect. All families perpetuate the rebellion of Adam to some degree or another, even Christian families. Nobody is born a Christian. Christians are something God makes. Even a good Christian upbringing is not a guarantee that you're going to become a regenerate person. And I don't care how many times you baptize your babies. That does not mean they're covenant children. It certainly doesn't mean that they're regenerate. Salvation is of the Lord, not by our sacraments. So wounding or trauma occurs within all families for the simple reason that all families are imperfect. So trauma, then, or wounding, is therefore a universal human condition. Some are better than others. Some folks come out of their family systems in better psychological and physical condition than others. But psychological and physical wounding does occur on a continuum from mild to evil. This is one reason God commanded Samuel to destroy the Amalekites both man and woman, infant and nursing baby, quote, end quote. The Amalekites were a people given over to the evil of that day as manifested in their generational commitment to oppose God's redemptive purpose, especially in bringing Israel out of Egypt. Now, <clears throat> what I want you to understand is the leading symptoms of trauma is codependence and addiction. Now, the inability 
to form and maintain meaningful, healthy, and loving relationships is all that codependence means. It's the adult response to developmental trauma. The inability to form and maintain meaningful, healthy, and loving relationships is codependence, for which addiction in all of its forms, including religious addiction, is a leading symptom. So when I have people come into my counseling office, and I'm a pastoral counselor, I'm clear with everyone that I meet, and I'm a Christian, I, have a, I don't use a, a psychological model, I use a theological model, and I counsel out of that. The law uh, is something that we talk about. The, the grace is something we talk about. We talk about the new covenant. We talk about the work of the Spirit and so on. We talk about the gospel. So when somebody comes in my office, what we're talking about almost always is their inability to form and maintain healthy relationships. They're having relationship issues and or suffering from some form of addiction. Now, these are most often genuine Christians, good, dutiful Christians, people who go to church regularly, who uh, give regularly, who um, read their Bibles, even though seldom do they, not, do they know what they're reading um, or how to read it. They're not taught. They're told to read their Bibles, but they're not taught how to. And so they're suffering from religious addiction. Their inability to form and maintain healthy relationships, and they're suffering from some form of substance abuse or eating or retail therapy or some other form of addiction, all the way extending to sex addiction and other more heinous forms of addiction. And yet they are genuine Christians suffering under the weight and burden of a pseudo-gospel and its powerlessness to transform them. They're drinking from a poisoned well. But it's the only well they know. And I'm here to tell you today that stop drinking from the poisoned well of traditionalism. You're never going to find living water from the well of traditionalism. So, in fact, the, the law, by the way, was God's calling for Israel to love God and neighbor, to practice righteous relationships, which reflected the holy character of God in their interactions with one another. But Israel failed to fulfill this calling. The law instead exposed the faithless and stubborn heart of God's covenant people, which is characteristic of the incurable wound. So now religious addiction is best understood as a mindless devotion to destructive religious beliefs and practices masked by human traditionalism. And I'm going to, we're going to go to a text in Mark chapter 7 in a few minutes, and I'm going to show you that. Religious addiction is best understood as mindless devotion to destructive religious beliefs and practices which are masked by human traditionalism. 
Jesus often exposed the traditionalists of his day and their destructive beliefs and practices. Indeed, Jesus did not see tradition as complementary to Scripture, but as a substitute for Scripture. In Paul's letters, consistently content, he contended with the Jewish traditionalists teaching another gospel that produced only the works of the flesh and not the godly community of the Spirit. This is why Paul was so exercised. Not only were these Jewish traditionalists coming in, these men who represented themselves as Christian leaders, they even represented themselves as having the fullness of the gospel because they included the law. They included the need for circumcision to follow Jewish identity markers. That reminds me, I recently clicked on a YouTube video, a short three-minute video by a orth- Greek Orthodox priest who made the same argument that the Judaizers made. He said, don't read your Bible, don't look, don't look to your Bible because you can't interpret it properly, but just look to the first three centuries of the Church Fathers and realize that only in the Orthodox Church do you have the fullness of the gospel? Be like us. Become a Greek Orthodox member of the Greek Orthodox tradition, and you'll be a real Christian. That's the same argument that the Judaizers made to the Christians in Galatia. It has never ended, folks. I used to think, I used to think that when Paul made his serious, profound argument in the letter to the Galatians, that when he closed that letter, that controversy was put to rest. That was my own naivete. Because church history proves that that did not solve it. It addressed it. It created accountability. If you don't believe it, you're even in, you're in trouble. You're standing before God opposed to God, not a good position to be in, but it didn't resolve it. The Jewish traditionalist teaching has continued to haunt and plague the church throughout church history. The whole of the New Testament speaks against such empty traditionalism as the source of hypocrisy, division, slander, and all ungodliness. And yet, I would wager today that 90%, and that may be generous, it may be 95% of professing Christians are caught up in some form of traditionalism and therefore suffering from some form of religious addiction. So, as I said, in the last lesson, we discovered that that incurable wound that sprang from Adam continued through the wilderness generation, was personified by Saul, that the prophets continually spoke against, and that under a new covenant alone, Jeremiah and Ezekiel proclaiming a coming of a renewal under a new covenant, under which God's laws would be internalized so as to produce a holy, faithful covenant people. And that through Isaiah we discover that the new covenant is not an abstract, it's a person. 
the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the new covenant with Israel. And it is obedience to this covenant that that defines biblical obedience and worship. Now, it's that last statement I'd like you to take careful note of. So I'll say it again, slowly. Jesus himself is the new covenant with Israel. And it is obedience to this covenant that defines biblical obedience and worship. Anything less is the pseudo-obedience and the alternative form of worship that God rejected in Saul, in Israel, in Adam, and has never stopped rejecting. Think of what I just said. Because contemporary Christianity is defined by pseudo-obedience and alternative worship. It has everything in common with Saul and his behavior and nearly as little of anything in common with the apostolic tradition of Jesus and his apostles. And this is why this study is so very important to you. And you want to be obedient to the word of God, spoken in these last days through his son, and not be taken captive by the modern traditionalists who are under a double curse already. They are already operating under a double curse. And they, and they will they will suffer the greater condemnation. But for now, they're acting as religious drug lords, peddling a false obedience, which produces only religious addiction, and avoiding Christ-like holiness in God's people, serving as an obstacle to Christ-like holiness in God's people. Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And I want to talk with you about traditionalism. I want you to be clear about that today. Let's look at that text beginning with verse um, 1. The Pharisees, quote, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came from Jerusalem. Now, these were the authorities. There were as many as 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at this time. And them and their scribes, which were the experts in the law, were seen as the most righteous of the righteous. They were viewed by the people as the religious authorities. The people who knew the law inside and out. These were men of the Bible. And now they had come from Jerusalem because they heard what Jesus was doing under the power of the Spirit. The people, the lives were being healed. 
Wherever he entered villages or cities or a countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces, imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and all who touched it were being healed. God was present to his people. And the Pharisees heard of that, and they scurry up then to Galilee, and they saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees, Mark makes a parenthetical remark here, for the Pharisees and all other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. And then he continues with the narrative, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands? So they were indicting Jesus and his disciples as being ceremonially unclean. What they expected, no doubt, from Jesus was remorse and an apology and an amendment of behavior. After all, they were the leading authorities. I'm sure people stepped aside when they came along. People made way for these men to walk through. But he said to them, quote, Instead, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Pseudo-obedience, folks. Verse 8, Jesus goes on, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Let me just interject. See, this is the sin of Saul carried forth into the first century situation. Same exact behavior. They modify the word of God. They neglect the commandment of God by modifying it and then make room for their own tradition. <clears throat> and every time that happens, every time that occurs, what occurs is the tradition becomes the authority. Now Jesus here is making it very clear, and I want you to hear me clearly, please. Jesus is making it vividly clear that he never viewed religious tradition to be complementary to Scripture. Period. Today we hear many people talk about, well, you know, what tradition are you part of? Well, I'm on the Pentecostal tradition. Oh, okay. Well, I'm on the Lutheran tradition. Oh, okay. Well, what tradition are you part of? I'm part of the Anglican tradition, or I'm part of the Baptist tradition. See, we inherently know that there's 
great division within the contemporary Christianity, universal Christianity. And so we, we have been taught to honor and respect people's own religious tradition. There are some, for instance, like the Catholic tradition, the Greek Orthodox tradition, Anglican tradition, even the Methodist tradition, in which they see tradition as a complementary authority to Scripture. Authority in some of these liturgical traditions is viewed as Scripture, tradition, and reason. In Methodism, it's Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And what we're learning in this text is that Jesus did not view tradition, human religious tradition, as a complementary thing to Scripture, but as a substitute to Scripture. Very important. And it goes on within the evangelical church too. There are even so-called evangelical Bible churches who have their own tradition. There are those who today, uh, like the old joke, the Baptist who's talking to a Catholic guy and said, you know, we Baptists, we don't have tradition. And it's always been like that. <laughs> it's our tradition not to have any tradition. All you have to do to become a traditionalist, folks, is modify the Word of God to fit your chosen practices and beliefs. And you are a traditionalist. You're no better than a Roman Catholic or a Greek Orthodox or anybody else at that point. You've elevated your chosen religious practices and beliefs to the point where the Word of God becomes an obstacle to them, so you have to modify the Word of God in order to uh, impose your traditions upon the text. You have to make the text support your tradition. And when you do that, you end up substituting your tradition for the Word of God. Now, who are these men? Where else did they show up? What was their character? What was their ethic? For being treated as, you remember Matthew 23, they, they loved to be in the marketplace and be called rabbi, rabbi. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is teaching the crowd, and in his teaching, it says in verse 38, he was saying this. Now listen carefully. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like personal greetings in the marketplaces and seats of honor in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. Now, if you saw all of that going on today, what would be your response? If you're part of a tradition today where men walk around in long robes and love their personal greetings either in the church or in the marketplace 
If you're part of a tradition, even as many Baptist traditions are, that have a big stage and all the leaders sit up on top of the stage and get the seats of honor. I remember Billy Graham used to do that back in the day. During his crusades, he'd be preaching, and behind him would be a host of local dignitaries and uh, pastors who uh, were sitting on the stage with him. Seats of honor. Elevated people. If you're in a tradition today where they love to have the honor at banquets and then devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, devouring widows' houses is encouraging the, the, young, the, the, the young and old widows to rely upon the system for support and give whatever monies and assets they have to the system and then when they can't rely on the system, they go home and starve. That's what happened. That was a common practice in first century Israel. Listen to what Jesus says. These will receive all the more condemnation. These will receive all the more condemnation. Please underline that in your Bible. What I'm saying to you today is that God is not impressed with religious tradition. God condemns it. Jesus did not view it as complementary to Scripture, but as a substitute to Scripture. There's a quote in by a fellow by the name of E.H. Broadbent in his book by called The Pilgrim Church. I want to share that with you. He's a very good church historian. If you ever have a chance to get a, your hands on a copy of the book, The Pilgrim Church, I encourage you to read it. Church history is often written by the conquerors, and so you get a good history of the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation. What you don't get is a church history written about those who were always the faithful believers and who suffered quite frankly, at the hands of both the Catholic and the Protestant state church. But regarding the substitution I just mentioned, he says this, um, there was a growing change together with equally striking changes by which the remembrance of the Lord in his death and the breaking of bread and drinking of wine among his disciples was changed into an act miraculously performed, it was claimed, by priests, intensified the growing distinction between clergy and laity. The growth of a clerical system under the domination of bishops, who in turn were ruled by metropolitans, quote-unquote, which is regional bishops, controlling extensive territories. Listen carefully now substituted, substituted, I'll say it again, substituted a human organization and religious forms for the power and working of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the scriptures in the separate churches. Substituted. 
substituted a human organization and religious forms for the power and working of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the scriptures in the separate churches. What I just read is a piece from church history that by the 2nd and 3rd century, everything that Jesus is condemning in Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 12 took hold again. That's what I said earlier. These things don't resolve. They continue. They continue right along with the gospel truth. And what I hope for you in this series is that you will get very clear that your discernment will be sharpened and that you will look at your own self and your own religious heritage and your own church, perhaps, you're even going to now, and discern whether or not you are caught up in some kind of traditionalism that is marked by pseudo-obedience and an alternative form of worship that has nothing to do with the gospel. And if your Christian experience is unfulfilling, if your life is not being transformed, if you lack genuine righteousness, peace, and joy by the Holy Spirit in your life, then that's why. And you'll mark it, you'll avoid it, and you'll come out of it. What will I do, you say then? What will I do then? You'll find others who have come out as well, and you'll have great, loving, joyous fellowship, even if it's in your, just your living room on Sunday mornings. But you will have come out of a monster. You will come out from under the rule of religious drug lords who are selling you nothing but creates religious tradition, addiction. They're selling you a drug that produces religious addiction. Okay, well, back to our text. So not only does Jesus reject religious tradition as being complementary to Scripture, he says it's a substitute for Scripture. And then in Mark 12, he identified these men and their character and their practices and then he concludes our text by telling them that this form of religious tradition is not only unbiblical, it not only substitutes for the word of God, but it is cruel. So he goes on to say, you are experts at setting aside the command of God in order to keep your tradition. Mark 7, 9. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and the one who speaks evil of father and mother is certainly to be put to death. But you say, if a person says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would have helped you is korban, that is, given to God. You no longer allow him to do anything for his father or mother, and thereby invalidating the word of God by your own tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. So religious, religious traditionalism substitutes itself for the word of God. And it's cruel. It produces cruel religious behavior. It's an oppressive thing. And millions, untold millions, perhaps billions, are addicted to it. Traditionalism 
locks you in to religious addiction. And people's lives are destroyed. It's cruel. Let me give you another example of that cruelty. Back to Mark 12. After having just described who these scribes are who like to walk around in long robes, these experts in the law, these Bible experts, he tells them these will receive all the more condemnation. And then while he's still at the temple, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began watching how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large amounts. There was actually trumpets that would be blown when you put money, especially large amounts, into the treasury. Verse 42, And a poor widow came and put in two lepta coins, the smallest Greek copper coin, about one one hundred and twenty-eighth of a laborer's daily wage. Very small amount of money. Which amounted to a quadrant. About one sixty-fourth of a laborer's daily wage. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put out of their own surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live in. Jesus is illustrating that this corrupt, apostate temple system and the Sadducees that ran it and the scribes who taught about it, and the Pharisees who encouraged it, destroyed this woman's life. It just We just read, didn't we? It's in verse 40, just above this text. Who devour widows' houses, and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. Well, we'll pray for you, ma'am. They devour her house of her estate, Acting under the guise as caretakers, they encourage widows to let them manage their estates for them. They'll step in. She has no husband. She has no son. She has no family. So the scribes step in and say, we'll manage your affairs. And they devour her house. And this particular widow only had two small coins left. All she had to live on. And so she went and returned to that same system because that's when you do what you do when you're a religious addict. You keep returning to that same system, hoping this time it's going to be different. No different than any other form of addiction. Same characteristics. She returns to the system, drops in two coins, and probably goes home hoping now that God will bless her because she gave everything that God you know, he might, she might have even been told that if you'll give everything, God will bless you. Cruelty. Traditionalism substitutes the word of God for itself. Substitutism, uh, traditionalism is, uh, is propagated by men in long robes or elevated clergy who love personal greetings 
seats of honor in the synagogues, at banquets. They love the attention. They love the honor, just like Saul, who stopped on his way back from destroying the Malachite people with Agag in tow and all the best of the livestock in tow and build an, uh, a monument to himself, an honor to himself. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, Rick, I've, I've always been told that that widow's might, the widow's coins, was a exemplary act. In fact, it was a model of Christian giving. Well, it's not. It's not. You've been told that by ignorant men and women who have been told that by some other before that. Because that's what traditionalism does too. It has nothing to do with Christian giving. Is Christian giving really about giving everything that you have and you own down to the final two coins in your bank account and then going home with nothing? Is that really a standard for Christian giving? And you'll say, well, no, no, no. It's, it's about sacrificial giving. Okay. Is that what this woman was doing? She was giving sacrificially? No, she was giving all. She was giving the ultimate sacrifice to a system that had robbed her, that had devoured her house, had left her penniless, if left her without resources, and frankly, probably cared very little as whether she lived or died. We have to start seeing traditionalism for what it is. It's evil. It destroys you. It sanctions and promotes religious addiction. So you can't get out from it. It's no different than the more um, explicit forms of it that we find in the cults. How many times do you hear in the hyper-charismatic movement, out of which I came back when I was a young man, that you know you had to be under a covering. You had to, you had to find a, a prophet or an apostle and and uh, at least a, a a preacher and get under his covering, or the devil will get you. You had to give ten percent of your gross income, or the devil would eat up your finances. You had to be careful to do this, that, or the other thing, or or the devil would get you. If you didn't speak in tongues, you probably weren't a Christian. In a more traditional sense, the, you might, if you missed church, you may have sinned. If you didn't participate in the priestly sacraments, you might be under mortal sin. See, this is just how it goes, on and on and on. You might have been told that Romans 7 has to define the um, normal Christian life. When that's not at all what Paul's saying in Romans 7. These are the things that happen to us. This is what religious addiction does to us. And religious tradition locks us into religious addiction. When the Apostle Paul writes of the works of the flesh, he includes the religious impulse of the flesh. Did you know that? Mark it. Galatians 3, 1-9. 
in Galatians 5.20. Sorcery, idolatry, it's a, those are the religious impulses of the flesh. Jesus told Nicodemus he was operating out of a fleshly religion. That which, was the, that, that which is of the spirit, spirit and that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Your religion is fleshly, Nicodemus. I'm, in, I'm telling you that you need to be born of the Spirit. And those who opposed Paul and his new covenant ministry, he regarded as under a double curse, by the way. Galatians 1, 6-9. He regarded them as false apostles and abusive, abusive, by the way, servants of Satan, who appeared as an angel of light working through human agents. 2 Corinthians 11, 12-21 Paul had no problem calling pseudo-obedience and worship for what it was. But we, sadly, are much too nice to do that. And we suffer. We suffer at the hands of these traditionless, these waterless clouds, these ungodly leaders, who survive by deception and charm and history is on their side. We want the stability of a religious tradition, of a place to go on Sundays. And we never ask ourselves if it's a pseudo-obedience or if it's a worship, God rejects. Well, let's pause there. I think I've certainly given you enough to ponder today. We're going to get into now uh, a little bit more of the study of Hebrews next time. And we're going to be talking about the new and living way that is facilitated in our life by the mediation of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. We're going to be talking about how to know that we are among those worshipers whom the Father seeks, so that we can be certain that our worship is a worship the Father not only accepts, but you are a worshiper whom the Father is seeking, going from being under a tradition that rejects, that God rejects, to being among worshipers whom God seeks. That's what I want for you. And that's what we'll continue to do as we wrap up this series in the next two episodes. May the Lord bless you and strengthen you, keep you, comfort you, and protect you from the religious drug lords and their traditionalism that produces only a religious addiction. Amen.